you could make 75 million instead of 75,000 and doesn't really make you much happier. And what they find is that if you're looking for money to make you happy, if you're not happy and you're hoping, gee, when I get to this dollar amount, then I'll be happy, that doesn't work at all. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're talking about how to live a happy life. While there are countless opinions, articles, and videos on the subject of happiness, I thought it would be fun to learn about happiness from a study that has been focused on the subject for over 80 years. And to help us learn more about this study and its transformative results, I've invited the director of the study, Bob Waldinger, on the show today. Bob is the professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, where he directs the Harvard Study of Adult Development, the longest scientific study of happiness ever conducted. Dr. Waldinger is the author of The Good Life, co-authored with Mark Schultz, which examines the central role of relationships in shaping our health and well-being. His TEDx talk on this subject has received over 45 million views, which I believe is the ninth most watched TED talk ever. Welcome to the show, Bob. Good to be here. Absolutely. Glad to have you here. Thank you so much for being here and talking about this subject. I love being happy. It's something that I strive for in my life, and we talk about a lot on this show, so I'm excited to uh, talk to you about it. Now, the study of happiness, as I said, has been going on for over 80 years. Can you talk about the genesis of it, how and why it began? It began in 1938, and it actually began as two studies that didn't know about each other, both at Harvard. One was a group of Harvard College sophomores, 19-year-olds, who were thought by their deans to be fine, upstanding young men. And it was meant to be a study of normal development from adolescence to young adulthood. So, you know, of course, if you want to study normal development, you study all white guys from Harvard. Like, no way. <laughs> right. It's so politically incorrect. Now, but since then, we've brought in women. We've... Uh, the other study was started at Harvard Law School, and it was also a study of thriving, but it was a study of children from Boston's poorest and most troubled families. And the question was, how do kids from such difficult homes manage to stay on good paths and stay out of trouble? And then eventually we combined both studies so that we could look at one very privileged group, one very underprivileged group, and then their spouses, now all their kids, more than half of whom are women. So that's what we've got. Excellent. Excellent. And I understand this study, I believe I'm using the correct term, a longitudinal study is what it is. Can you talk about what difference this study has in comparison to other studies that maybe are on the subject? Most studies are snapshot studies. Essentially, they look at people at one point in time. And so you could, for example, look at, like, what if you wanted to look at how depression changes over the course of the life cycle? You could just do a snapshot of 20-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 60-year-olds. The problem with that is you can end up thinking you see connections that don't really exist. The best way to explain that is through a joke from, <laughs> there was a Senator, Claude Pepper, from the state of Florida, and he once said, when I look at South Florida, I would have to believe that you are born Cuban and you die Jewish. 
his, <laughs> what he said was, you know, look, if you take snapshots right now, you can think you know how things progress, but you don't. You need to take the video. So a longitudinal study is really a long video of human life over 85 years. And that's what you guys have been doing with these individuals for over 80 years, having conversations with them, tracking video, and all that goes into it, even health aspects as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. Health is a big part of it. Well, so you guys did a long research study, and you're the fourth director, I believe, of the study. What did the study conclude? Two things. One won't be a surprise. It's that if you take care of your health, it really matters. You'll live longer, feel better as you get older. But the other thing we were surprised by was that the people who stayed healthiest and lived the longest were the people who had the best relationships with other people. And it may sound obvious, but actually it wasn't to us. We almost didn't believe our findings, that it made sense that you'd be happier if you had better relationships. But how could better relationships make it less likely that you'd get coronary artery disease or type 2 diabetes? Like, how could that be a thing? And many other studies began to find the same thing. So now we understand that this is really true, that good relationships protect our bodies and our brains. Now, you talk about good relationships. I think that's probably a pretty distinctive word to use, too, because would you say when we talk about quantity of relationships versus quality of relationships, there's a, a big difference there. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, some people say, well, you know, my relationships are great. I've got like 5,000 friends on Instagram. No, that's <laughs> no, that's not it. That really what we're talking about are connections that make you feel like you belong, that make you feel like people have your back. We think the most important connections are connections with people who you feel you can count on when things get tough. So, for example, you know, we, we asked our original participants, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And some of them, most of them could list quite a number of people, but some people couldn't list anybody. We think those are the people who are suffering. And that has nothing to do with how many friends you have online. That's That has to do with how many good connections you have in the real world. You guys talk about it in the book, and I know you've, you've spoken about it at length. Can you talk about the general loneliness epidemic that is taking hold not only in our country, but around the world? Yeah, it's been going on for years now. Long before COVID, there was an epidemic of loneliness. What we be, when we finally started studying it, we realized that one in three to one in four people in the US, for example, on every, any given day will tell you they feel lonely all the time or most of the time. That's a huge rate of loneliness in the world. And these rates are, are that high around the world in most countries, particularly in developed countries. To the point you started to make earlier with regard to our physical health, our mental health, how does being lonely over the long term affect that health? We know that loneliness is a stressor, a big stressor. So it seems that we evolved as human beings to be social animals, probably because you survive better if you're in groups, right? So if the goal of evolution is to pass on our genes, then they found, you know, the people who died off sooner 
were the people who were isolated, who were alone out there on the savanna, getting eaten by lions. And so what we understand is that being lonely is actually a physical stressor, that your blood pressure goes up, your levels of inflammation go up all through your body, those kinds of things. And that therefore, higher stress levels from loneliness break down your body over time. Now, I know this data can come to life when you really share real stories of people. And obviously, you've connected with quite a few people throughout the study. And I know anonymity is a very important part of the study. Would you be able to share some real-life examples of people who have had, I guess, maybe the benefits of those quality relationships and, and maybe some that have not? Sure. In the book, two of the stories that go through the book, we weave stories through the book along with these scientific findings, are the people we call John and Leo. And Leo was a, a guy who went to Harvard and came back from World War II, where he served and had to get a job. He wanted to become a writer, but he had to take care of his family, his mother in particular. So he got a job as a history teacher in a high school. He stayed teaching history through his whole career and turned out loved teaching history, loved his students, loved his colleagues. I had a good marriage, great kids, and then grandkids. And he was a person who prioritized his connections with other people. That was mo what was most important to him at work and at home. And he stayed really happy and healthy into his 90s. The, by contrast, we had a man we called John, who was also a Harvard student, who was set up for success. He became a very prominent lawyer, high achieving, won lots of awards, earned tons of money, had two really unhappy marriages, distant relationships with his children, very few friends, and was disabled pretty early physically and died very isolated and unhappy. So those are kind of the extremes of one of our happiest people and one of our least happy people. And a lot had to do with their relationships. A piece of that in which we talk about on the show a lot is building wealth for your family and, and you know, growing your net worth and things like that. And I understand that there is a relationship when it comes to wealth and happiness. And I'm kind of always trying to explore that on the show with conversations like this. When we talk about building wealth, how did you come across in the study how that correlated to happiness as well? Is it a part of happiness? Can money buy happiness? Well, I know more about it from other people's research, not ours. Certainly, we know from ours that well, the, you know, the Harvard people who were much wealthier were not on average happier than the inner city folks. But there's been good research on this now from Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist, and there's controversy. So one of the things they find is that until we get our basic needs met, so up to about $7,500,000 a year household income, as we make more money, our happiness goes up until we reach those points. Because understandably, you need to have money to pay the bills. But that then once you get above that, there's controversy. Basically, your happiness doesn't go up all that much. You could make $75 million instead of $75,000 and doesn't really make you much happier. 
And what they find is that if you're looking for money to make you happy, if you're not happy and you're hoping, gee, when I get to this dollar amount, then I'll be happy, that doesn't work at all. You're not 1,000 times happier because you make 1,000 times more money. Is, is that what you're saying? No, you're not much happier at all. So the, if you want to, you know, some people prioritize making a lot of money. They say, well, this is what I'm going to do because I'll be happier. My family will be happier. That's not really true. My counter to that too then would be in order to have those quality relationships and create those connections, what we need then is maybe more time than money, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, when when our folks were in their 80s and we said, looking back on your life, what do you regret the most? The most common regret was, I wish I hadn't spent so much time at work and I wish I had spent more time with the people that I care about. Absolutely, yeah. Grabbing that time when we can, right? I have some questions too, because there are maybe some people who, as you guys joke about in the book too, which I heard is like, you have to give this very short answer to, you know, what is the secret of happiness? You have to answer it in just a short bit. But really, you know, there's a lot of people that might say, well, you know, what about physical health, you know, or what about exercising daily or meditation? Those surely have to be much more important than close relationships. Were these close seconds in the conversations that you were having and learning about your research? What other elements, I guess, is what I'm getting at? What other elements besides close relationships were important in your happiness research study? So we never did an actual horse race because it'd be almost be impossible to do those studies. <laughs> right. It's a good, it's a good way to put say, it. <laughs> well, meditation is more important than, you know, having good friends. No, but what we find is that those other things really do matter. That exercise matters hugely. Not smoking, not abusing alcohol or drugs, eating well, not becoming obese. Those things matter a lot. Meditation can be hugely helpful for well-being, as can getting enough sleep. So a lot of these self-care things that we know are good for us really do make a difference. They really add to that foundation of well-being that we're talking about. So you can't be happy 24-7. Nobody is, ever. But you can build this kind of foundation of well-being, and that comes with relationships, that comes with good self-care. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I think that at times, I can say personally, I have maybe put my relationships, my family, my wife, my kids, maybe above my own needs in hopes of, you know, creating those solid relationships that last a lifetime, but then maybe neglecting the care that is maybe needed for my own self. Can you talk about the balance of, and knowing your background with being a Zen priest as well, can you talk about the importance of you know, I guess, self-care versus creating quality relationships and how to find that balance? Well, it has to be a balance because, you know, in Zen, the teaching is they're not separate. That if I'm not taking care of myself, I'm going to make the world miserable. And if I'm not taking care of the world, what goes around comes around. So it's all connected. But what that means is we really do have to take care of ourselves or we are going to suffer. And then, of course, the people around us will suffer. So it's really important to find that balance and to keep finding that balance. It's not a balance you find and then you're done. 
It's looking every day at, okay, what do I need in order to be okay? And how does that support the people around me when I take care of myself? I think that's fantastic. And one thing you talked about too in the book is this is not a destination happiness. It's not like I got it and I'm out. I'm going to go back to living life. Can you talk about the importance of realizing that a good life doesn't mean reaching a happiness destination? Yeah. Well, nobody on the planet is happy all the time. You never get there. It's always a journey. And the journey metaphor sounds like a cliche, but it's really the truth. I mean, if you think about it, you know, I'm happy right now talking to you, but an hour from now, something upsetting might happen. And that's just the way life is. And life is always bringing challenges, things like the pandemic, even things we plan, like having a child or getting married. So all of that means that we can never be, we never have a place to rest. There's no final place to rest. It's always a work in progress. And that actually is one of the things that makes life interesting. Variety could be a great part of your happiness journey and, and shaking things up and learning about new things. Bob, somebody's listening and they are really enjoying our conversation and they maybe are realizing that they haven't been taking the time to build those quality relationships. Maybe they're a little too work-focused or they're a little too single-minded, focused on one area of their lives, but they want to move towards a life of quality relationships. Can you give them some advice on, now knowing this from your 80-year research study, what small tactical steps they could make towards starting to create more quality relationships in their lives? Sure. Two things. One is you can strengthen the relationships you already have, which is a great place to start. And that might mean being just proactive, like reaching out to the people in your life. So you could do that right now as, you, as you're listening to this conversation. Think of somebody who you don't see enough and you miss and you'd like to connect with and just send them a text or an email saying, hi, I was thinking of you and just wanted to connect. You will be amazed at the good stuff that comes back to you. Now, it won't come back to you every time, so we need to think of it more like being up at bat in a baseball game. You know, you're not going to hit the ball every time, but you will be amazed at how often people are thrilled to hear from you. People want to connect. People want to make plans. So that's one thing. Take care of the relationships you already have. And that can be through really small actions day to day, week to week. And then the other thing would be to make new relationships by putting yourself in contact with people who share your interests. So volunteer for something or join a club or, you know, go for a, a sporting activity. Do something with the same people over and over again. Because if you share an interest with other people, it's a natural conversation starter. Because we often wonder, well, what am I going to talk to a stranger about? Well, if you're doing something you enjoy alongside somebody else, that's the place to start. I've been reading some other books and just listening to some interesting statistics about men in general with regard to making connections and communication. Did you find in your research study that it is, I guess, more difficult for men to do this than women, knowing that you guys included women in your study later on? We looked at this actually when we wrote the book, and what the research shows is that 
men and women aren't as different as we think they are in relationships, that relationships are just about as important to men as they are to women, that men are socialized, they're brought up to do different things together. So men may do more activities together. Women may sit and have a cup of tea and confide in each other more often. And those are stereotypes, but they are kind of common. But what we find is that men actually do care about relationships. Women often are the people in the household who take care of the social life for a family. And so it can be a bit of an effort for the men to be the active ones to make plans, and particularly to make plans on their own with friends, with family. So that's an exercise that men may need to be more active in, in trying to, a muscle that they may need to develop more. I know that's something uh, as I'm getting into my 40s and and eventually my 50s that it's not as easy to get together with friends as much as it used to be. And it takes a little bit more effort because of all the other activities that fill up our time as you know, husbands, as fathers, as workers. And uh, that extra effort is is definitely worth it. Well, Bob, I'm really enjoying your book. I am flying through it currently and I'm enjoying the stories as well as I'm an audio guy, so I'm listening to it. And I know a lot of people like reading too. Tell people more about the book and then where they can connect with you and, and learn more from you. The book is a deep dive into everything you and I have just been talking about with more stories, lots of science, but not science that's difficult to understand. It's not technical. We put everything in very plain language because most of the papers we publish are in journals that nobody reads and they're very technical. So we wanted this to be a book that people find interesting and can really use in their own lives. And there are exercises like the kinds of things I've just been talking about. What can you do to make your life better and your connections with others better? And so the book, you can order it just about anywhere. And if you want to know more about what I do in my Zen, in my research, my website is robertwaldinger.com. Robertwaldinger, all one word, dot com. Excellent. Well, I'll put that information in the show notes. Yeah, I like your point on it not being, I guess, too data or scientific based. I think you guys utilize the phrase that it's, uh, you know, science and data meeting philosophy and having that great connection. I see that in the book very well. So, Bob, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I look forward to getting this message out there. Great. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. It makes so much sense. Quality relationships just make life better. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Dr. Robert Waldinger. Number one, quality over quantity. When it comes to your relationships, it is more important to focus on quality over quantity. Finding and nurturing relationships with five close friends and family members beats out having 5,000 casual social media followers any day. (laughs) Having someone who truly knows you and in turn, you know them, it's a special thing. These types of relationships are the key to our long-term happiness and vitality. Number two, financial independence can improve your relationships. I believe money can buy you happiness up to a point. It can help you have food. It can help you have shelter. It can help you have clothing. It can help you have entertainment and so much more. There does come a point in time when more money above beyond a certain point doesn't move the happiness needle as much. 
At that point, I vote for working less so you can start earning a more important resource back, your time. When we have more time in our schedule, we can spend it on nurturing quality relationships and making memories that truly last. Number three, step out of your comfort zone. Dr. Waldinger talked to us about the loneliness epidemic that is sweeping the world today. Loneliness is a slow killer. We need people. We need connections to survive and thrive. Start today by reaching out to a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while to reconnect or join a group or a club or volunteer somewhere that helps you form new relationships. When you have a common interest, conversation becomes a lot easier. While these actions may feel like you're stepping out of your comfort zone, it may lead you to a much happier place altogether. And those are my top three takeaways, everyone. I would love to hear from you on what yours were. Please hit me up on social media at Marriage Kids and Money on Instagram and Facebook and at Andy Hill MKM on LinkedIn. Let's keep the conversation going. As a quick reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only, my friends. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabbitt for editing our show today and to Mandy Burt for her stellar writing on our blog and to Weird Digital Marketing for their social media support and podcast support. This content, everyone, is not possible without these folks. So thank you all for supporting us on our mission of family, wealth, and happiness education. If you want to create some more connections with like-minded people who are on a mission to improve their family's finances, talk about making connections, please join us in the Thriving Families Facebook group. This is a free Facebook group focused on helping young families thrive. Each week, we ask our members to share some family financial wins that they've had. Recently, group member Harmony shared this great news with us. I just met my goal of saving $10,000 in my HSA, that's a health savings account, everybody, for me and my daughter, building the financial foundation for our future. Harmony, congratulations on this family win, and thank you so much for sharing it with us. The health savings account, everybody, is a smart way to take care of your healthcare expenses today and in the future. Because Harmony is taking care of these steps today, she won't have to focus so much on her financial situation in the future, and she can focus her attention on what matters most in her life. Based on the sounds of things, her daughter is a big part of what matters most to her. Can I get a round of applause for our friend Harmony for sharing with us? All right, Harmony, thank you very, very much. All right. If you're looking to make some connections with like-minded people and get inspired by their wins, their goals, and everything else, please check out our free Thriving Families Facebook community. Go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. And just so you know, every once in a while, I like to set up a meetup where we all get together in person as well. So again, talk about making connections. (laughs) I hope to see you online and in person. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Unknown. True friends are great riches. Let's buy back our time so we can spend it on nurturing and growing our relationships, everyone. Carpe diem. 